0: Hey, everybody. It's Mike Schellenberger for Public. I'm so excited to introduce my guest for today, Brendan O'Neill, the chief political writer for Spiked and the author of a new book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Insayable. This is such an exciting book to read. I devoured the entire thing in a single sitting on a flight back from London to the United States last week. I found myself pumping my hand into the air thrilled to have somebody that was articulating things I have felt, but am not articulate enough to say myself. And really pushing back against a whole set of things that we might call the new woke religion from transgenderism to climate change to COVID. Frankly, a whole bunch of things that are being taken on this essay are things that we are very concerned with here at Public. Pushing back against the totalitarian culture of censorship. So Brendan, it's a privilege and an honor to be able to welcome you to
1: public. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. That that means a lot coming from you. And, and that's exactly the reaction I wanted from people, just to feel like that they weren't alone in some of the concerns they were having about the era we live in. So if people feel that when they read the book, I'm very happy.
0: This, by the way, this is a book with 10 different essays in it. I think people should understand that this is this book really works as a book. It's not just a collection of essays. There's 10 chapters. They, On the one hand, they stand alone, and I think you can read them separately in different sittings. On the other hand, they really work as a single denunciation of what we might call woke totalitarianism and the subsequent censorship that it brings with it, both informal, legal self-censorship, but also this, this new censorship that we're seeing coming from powerful institutions, from the news media, from the social media. So there's a bunch of big themes and arguments running your book. Tell us a little bit about why you wrote it, and then tell us a little bit about the essays inside of it.
1: Yeah, so that was one of my concerns when I was writing it, that it would just feel like a collection of essays. And I I, I wanted to make them good essays, but I was worried they might feel a bit disjointed, you know, uh, just various thoughts from my minds, But I'm pretty pleased that in the end they hang together quite well actually and they all touch on the theme of heresy and what I refer to as the war on heresy, the clampdown on on different, different ways of thinking, critical ways of thinking, any pushback against the woke ideology or the woke tyranny or whatever we're supposed to call it, there's a real reluctance to allow people to speak freely on some of these issues so I wanted to draw together the various different themes that I think people are not free to speak about and not free to criticize. So the book is called A Heretics Manifesto. The subheading is Essays on the Unsayable. It covers the transgender idea. It covers climate change witch hunt, the, the, the climate change witch hunts of the past and the climate change witch hunts of today. It covers the race issue and what I see as the rehabilitation of racial thinking through politically correct language. It covers uh, something I'm very concerned about, which is the war on homosexuality that comes now through the uh, ideology of transgenderism, too. And it covers the uh, value of democracy and the way in which I think that's also being undermined. So I bring together a lot of concerns I've had for some time. And I just dig down into them a little bit more historically to try and draw out the historical importance of these values and why it's bad that they're being under attack today in this, in the woke era. So that was the aim of the book. I've had a really positive response from readers. So I'm pleased with how it's going. And I hope it connects with people who are concerned about the drift of politics in the 21st century. I really want to make the
0: point to listeners after they've heard this, and we're going to get more into the contents of your book, but there's – we're going to get into the contents, but there's no substitute for reading what you've written here. It's really a master class in style. You know, last week I tweeted that Matt Taibbi was the greatest living American heir to George Orwell, and people criticized me and said, oh, you're, you're being hyperbolic. I really wasn't. You'll note that my claim was very specific. I think he's the greatest living American heir to George Orwell – I must say you were on my mind when I said it, because I think that this is the best thing I've read on the subject since reading Orwell. And you are, in my view, the greatest living English heir to George Orwell. You're such a stylist. This book is just a pleasure to read. I found myself infuriated, frightened, but also just absolutely captivated by the quality of your prose by the truth that shines out from every page. I know it's a huge amount of work to write in a way like this where you can absorb so much truth in such a short set of essays and so quickly. So I just want to say congratulations and urge everyone listening to this to go to Amazon and buy this book. You're not going to get an appreciation of this book by listening to us talk here.
1: It's a Heretics Manifesto Essays on the Unsayable. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. And That is high praise, especially from you. You know how much I admire your writing and your work. But yeah, I think that the, the, the nicest thing you've said there is that I, I care about my reader. And, and I do, I want to, I'm always thinking, how can I draw, bring the reader with me, bring them bring them along on this journey of ideas that I'm going through myself. And I think that's so important. If you're writing a book like this, you want to connect with the reader, you want to have a conversation with him or her, you want to make them laugh, make them smile, but also make them think, and that was one of the key things I set out to do when I was writing the book, so thank you for that.
0: Well, great. Let's just get into it then. So let's start with the first chapter, which we ran yesterday at public, but let's get into it. This is an incredible essay, and people that have read it will know that. Uh, You can certainly listen to what we're going to say here without reading the essay, but if you have read the essay, I think it'll mean all that much more to you. So this is the, the first chapter in the book, Her Penis, this is an amazing just combination of words, and that's a, a lot of what you write about. I'm curious if you're familiar with this, I think, very viral Ricky Gervais sketch where he also puts these two words together. Was he on your mind when writing this? I think that anybody that saw that and found themselves sort of shocked or interested will then find your what you have to say in this chapter – um, even more enriching and profound. But I'm I'm just curious because of that was the first thing I thought of when I read it.
1: I, I do know the Ricky Gervais um skit that you're talking about or the stand-up routine where he he says her penis in relation to he's playing out that role, isn't he, where a woman is complaining about a man being in a in her in the bathroom and and eventually Ricky Gervais gets to the point where he, he's chastising the woman for saying uh, uh, his penis rather than her penis um, yes I'm familiar with that And but the, the reason I wrote that chapter it's funny because as soon as I thought to myself I'm going to write a book with a collection of essays themed around heresy and freedom and the right to dissent against orthodoxy I knew right away that the first chapter was going to be called Her Penis I knew right away that the opening line of the book was going to be we need to talk about Her Penis which is what the opening line is Um, Because I had clocked that phrase in the mainstream media, even in court reportings, in the reports of of what happens in police investigations of rape and what happens in in court proceedings here in the UK in relation to certain sexual offences, where if the offender identifies as a woman, then he is referred to as a woman, even in a court of law. So you have a situation, and I talk about this in the book, where a man who identifies as a woman sexually assaulted two prisoners, two female prisoners. And in court, they used the term, her penis was sticking out the top of her trousers when she attacked these women. And when you read stuff like that, you think to yourself, "Okay, how did this happen? How did that phrase, her penis, become such common usage that you see it in the Times newspaper, on the BBC, in court proceedings, in the, you know, we're not just talking about the bedlam of the internet where people say all sorts of crazy things. We're talking about the upper echelons of the establishment, of the media elites who are using this two-word phrase, which to me is fraudulent. It's a lie. Her penis is, I think, a double-speak phrase which is based in fantasy rather than reality. So I just started thinking, how did this phrase enter common usage? What is the process through which that happens? What are the pressures and the threats that are subtly used to make people use a phrase like her penis? And that really gets the ball rolling on one of the key themes of the book, which is the manipulation of language as a means of manipulating thought. And that is a very George Orwell idea that uh, if they can control language and how we speak, then fundamentally they can control how we think about the world, how we think about ourselves, how we think about the societies we live in. So In that chapter on her penis and subsequent chapters, I really make the case for defending the truth of language, the the reason of everyday speech and how we understand the world, in order to defend thought itself from the interferences of of the the powers that be, so to speak.
0: I'm really struck by the atrophy of just intellectual and critical capacity that would allow for this corruption of the english language to occur and that's a big part of what this book is about it's about the corruption of language leading to the demonization of dissenters and eventually their censorship you write and i want to read from this that um orwell devoted much of 1984 in exploring how the exercise of power becomes easier when you can control people's thought. And I want to actually quote a passage from here that I think is so um, important to understand what you're doing here. This is from George Orwell's 1984. Don't you see, says Syme, a lexographer at the Ministry of Truth, that the whole aim of newspeak is to narrow the range of thought. In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible because there will be no words in which to express it. So I'm curious how important Orwell was to you in writing this book. I'm also, let me go on and read this passage, an amazing passage. Boys and girls are no longer born. Rather, gender-neutral creatures come into existence, and we must allow them to discover their gender as they mature. It's, as you said later, motherhood downgraded, biology reimagined as bigotry, news propagandized. Language is indeed, quote, a useful tool for changing how people deal with each other, unquote. Let us call the cult of her penis what it is, a chilling act of cultural reprogramming through which we are being wrenched from tradition and organic knowledge and forced into a brave new world where what they say is the truth is the truth. Talk to me a little bit about this essay and
1: about this attack on language. First of all, I'm delighted if you just want to sit there and read the book to me. I'd love to hear some of those things read back to me and especially in your wonderful voice, so feel free. Um but I'm I'm glad you quoted that section where I refer to it as a as cultural reprogramming, because that does set up, I think, one of the key themes of the book. And you're absolutely right to raise this issue that you be you've been talking to Jacob Siegel about it. I'm sure you talked to many people about it, which is how do we refer to the censorious climate of the 21st century. I mean, it—it it is not the boot on the neck like in the olden days. It's, it's not really the Inquisition, although I do have the specter of the Inquisition in some of the essays in the book. But, you know, people are not being burnt at the stake. They're not being strangled to death in public, which is what happened to heretics in the past. People are being questioned by the police, especially in the UK, gender critical feminists have been questioned by the police, which is an outrage against freedom, in my view. But people are not really being imprisoned. So it's different to the past. I think it's more subtle. In some ways, it's more insidious. I think cultural reprogramming is essentially what's taking place. And I think the key thing to all of this is the control of language in order to control thought and in order to, as you say, create a new language which changes the way we think about the world around us. And one example I give in that first chapter, Her, her Penis, is a story that appeared in the New York Times and on the BBC, so we're talking about two very esteemed media outlets here about an 80-something, an 80-year-old woman who murdered and decapitated a woman in her 60s. And I read this and I thought, hold on, women in their 80s don't do this. Women in their 80s tend to be quite small and frail, certainly not murderously inclined. I can't think of any case in my lifetime where a woman in her 80s has murdered and decapitated another woman. You get to the end of the story, literally the last line in the case of the BBC, and it says, this person uh, is a trans-identified person. So it's a man. And it turns out that it's a man who murdered women in the past. He murdered women in the 1960s as well. So they are lying to us. They are telling us untruths. They have sacrificed The objectivity that is central to media discussion and and public discussion more broadly, they've sacrificed that objectivity at the altar of the new orthodoxies, at the altar of gender fluidity in this case, and and the trans ideology. That is unforgivable, in my view. And uh, G.K. Chesterton, who I quote in the book, he said, we will soon be in an era in which they will punish as heresy anyone who calls a triangle a three-sided figure. And I say in the book, we're now in that era. We're now in the era in which they are lying to us about important public matters and punishing people or demonizing people who speak the truth. So I thought it was important to use that chapter to set up just how serious the problems we face now are and the question of what we're going to do about them uh, going forward.
0: Now, some of our uh, readers will know that I tweeted, um, though I'm not even sure we ever shared on our Substack. Your words to an event that occurred in New Zealand, a British women's rights advocate named Kelly J. Keene. She goes by the name Parker Posey. She went to New Zealand to have a place for women to speak. And I'm just going to play the clip so people can hear it. rights advocate named kelly j keen who was assaulted by trans activists i think it's a powerful case because this isn't abstract stuff this is real stuff there's real anger in your book there's real violence in the world so so talk about that relationship between real world violence and violence against language
1: yeah well i i i do get angry sometimes when i'm writing because i'll I'll get halfway through a chapter or get towards the end of a chapter and i'll think god uh, all these things i've outlined and described which i've done as accurately and truthfully as i can really should be making people angry this really should be getting people concerned about where things are going so i start to feel it the more that i write it and i think each chapter in the book has that element to it where as i'm writing i'm 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 kind of riling myself up to think you know we have to do something about this we have to fight back against this culture and defend the principles of freedom and freedom of thought, freedom of speech and freedom of association. And that case of uh, Kelly J. Keene in New Zealand, the, the, the piece that you quoted from on, on Twitter, which drew a huge uh, amount of eyes to my piece, uh, the piece I wrote was in The um, Spectator. And uh, I watched that footage from New Zealand and I thought to myself, firstly, I've met Kelly J. Keen many times. She's a very nice person. She's a quite a diminu- diminutive person. She's quite small. She's a mum... She's a nice person. She's a lovely person. And when I saw her surrounded by this heaving mob of feral misogynists who were screaming abuse at her, throwing things at her, throwing water and tomato soup at her, um, throwing placards at her, uh, screaming expletives and threats in her face. Uh, Also at that gathering earlier in the the day, an older woman had been punched in the face by one of the trans activists, by a man. There was footage of men uh, tearing down metal gates in order to get to Posey Parker. And you think, what would they have done if they had got to her? I thought, this is the end result of the culture that we're living under. This is where it gets to. Because if you tell people that words are violence, then you invite them to use violence in response to words. And that's a point people have made many times before. It's a point I make in my book, too. But we saw the truth of it in that in that Salem-like atmosphere that was swirling around Kelly J. Keen for her speech crime of saying that a man is not a woman. That's all she says. And for that, she was monstered in the most extraordinary way. So that's a good example of where this can lead if we don't do something about it. And uh, I'm, we, I'm sure we'll come on to it, but uh, another chapter in my book where I talk about The way in which the culture of intolerance is crossing the line into violent pushback is in relation to Islamo-censorship and the restriction of what people can say about Islam or Islamist practices. That, I think, is also generating a culture of intolerance that crosses the line into threats of violence or acts of violence against anyone who commits the blasphemy, the supposed blasphemy of criticising Islam. So, You know, people say that freedom of speech has consequences and they're kind of right. It does. Freedom of speech does have consequences. That's why we use it. We want to change people's minds. We want to change society. So we use our words and our speech to put forward different ideas. But censorship always, in every instance, censorship has far more dangerous and dire consequences than free speech ever could because censorship uh, uh, aids and abets the brutality of intolerance and it it has an undercurrent of violence in it because the final uh, uh logic to censorship is that if you continue saying the thing you're not supposed to say we will attack you we will hurt you and that's what i that's what we saw with kelly j keen that we saw the end point of the culture of censorship where people said to her if you keep saying this we will kill you And when you live in that kind of society, it's really time to take a step back and work out how we got here and work out how we can get out of this as well. Now let's move on
0: to the second chapter on climate change, climate alarmism. It's a chapter on climate change, but it's called witch finding. Tell us what is the relationship between climate change and witches?
1: Yeah, so uh, I was very keen that Uh, One of the early chapters in the book would be on climate hysteria, because I think I I make the point in that chapter that there are few issues around which censorship is so intense or the culture of censorship. I mean, a whole I I make the point that a whole grammar of censorship has been created around the issue of climate change and huge uh, books and articles and uh, political policies are devoted to. Um, naming this uh, dissent, you know, climate change denial, to coming up wo- with ways for how to punish it, for, for ousting people from polite society if they question any aspect of the climate change thesis or the climate alarmist thesis. Um, my thinking on this has been influenced precisely by writers like you and the work that people like you have done in terms of calling out the, the apocalyptic ideology that lies behind some of the contemporary environmentalist movement. And in, in that chapter, what I wanted to do was just draw a line between uh, the witch hunts in Europe of the 1500s and the 1600s and what's happening today with the demonization of climate change scepticism or, or alarmist scepticism. Because what's very interesting about the, the uh, witch hysteria in Europe in that period is that it was quite closely linked with concerns about climate change. And um, this was the era of the Little Ice Age when there were freezing winters, it got very, very cold indeed, there was crop failures all over the place, there was a period of time for about 180 years when the grain crop just wasn't taking hold in Northern Europe and that caused huge distress and poverty and hunger amongst those communities and One of their responses to that was to go looking for the witches who must be responsible for this dramatic change in the weather. So if you look at that period, a lot of the witches who were dragged out into the public square and tied to the stake and set on fire, they were accused of causing contrary weather. They were accused of being behind crop failure. And I talk about one instance in... um, Germany, I think, or maybe the Netherlands, where a witch was pushed into the flames. And before she was pushed into the flames, she was forced to confess that she had caused the climatic uncertainty of that community and the cold weather and and the failed crops. So it's fascinating. And and other historians have noted this. Um, There's a brilliant book by Philip Blom about the Little Ice Age, which I highly recommend. It's just a fascinating historical book. But he talks a lot about the witch hysteria, and he links it to the Little Ice Age and and climatic uncertainty and and climate change. And the point I make is that if we fast forward to today, a similar thing is happening. You know, uh, the, the Changes in the climate or concerns about changes in the climate have given rise once again to a kind of witch hysteria where we go looking for deniers now rather than witches. We call them climate criminals rather than um, witches who cause contrary weather. We don't burn them, burn them at the stake, but we do try to blacklist them. We do wonder if maybe they should be forced to uh, 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 justify themselves in a court of law. Lots of green extremists have made that case, that climate change sceptics should be taken to court. Um, there is a general climate of hysteria around climate change, which echoes very directly the witch hunts of the 15 and 1600s. So uh, in that chapter, I wanted to remind people that the kind of Moment we're living through, the kind of intolerance, the kind of um, bristling, burning contempt for anyone who thinks differently or has a different point of view or, or who challenges the consensus. That's not an original moment. We've been here as a species before, and that means there are things in the past that we can learn from. We can try to avoid the mistakes they made when they hunted people down simply for saying certain things or behaving in a certain way. So in that chapter, I wanted to historicize our current moment a little bit and remind people that uh, hysteria has happened before and it's happening again today. And then the third
0: chapter is on covid As a metaphor, and I want to want you to talk us through this this third chapter as well, because then I think we may be able to find some connections between these issues.
1: Yeah, so COVID as metaphor, as you say, that's the third chapter in the book. People might recognise that that is borrowing from Susan Sontag, who wrote a brilliant book in the 1970s called *Illness as Metaphor*, and she looked at the way in which Throughout history, plagues and diseases and inf- infections were often treated as moral phenomenon. They were often seen as judgments on mankind for the way that we behave. You know, they were seen as expressions of divine displeasure, God wagging his finger at us and telling us off or uh, misbehavior in some way being reprimanded by mother nature. And so the point I make in that chapter is that we're experiencing something similar again in the COVID period, the way in which it was was referred to even by um, the head of the UN Environment Programme, who said that it was Mother Nature's way of telling us that we've gone too far. Modernity's gone too far. We're doing too much to the planet, and therefore the planet is now fighting back. You had, once again, the treatment of illness as metaphor, as a metaphor for uh, uh, not divine displeasure in this instance, but for nature's displeasure with mankind, or the way in which it became a metaphor for the sins of freedom. I think one of the most interesting ways in which COVID was talked about was uh, the way in which it Every form of social interaction was seen as a problem. Not only face-to-face social interaction, which obviously that did have the capacity to spread the virus from one person to another. But even online interaction, you know, the World Health Organization said that there's also an infodemic. There's a plague of disinformation on the internet. So you have to be careful even when you switch on your computer or you might be infected by wrong think. You might be infected by people who are raising the wrong kind of questions about lockdown policies or mask policies. So I was just fascinated across the board with the way in which this illness was meta turned into a metaphor for all sorts of things that the elites want to say to us and want to tell us off about but i think one of the key problems during the covid pandemic and during the lockdown moment was the way in which any form of dissenting thought any questioning of lockdown as a policy any questioning of mask mandates any suggestion that there might be a different way to approach a health crisis like this was shot down as its own form of plague. And the metaphors abounded all over the place. In medical journals, in political statements, people would say there's a plague of disinformation. There's a disease of uh, incorrect information. There's an infodemic. So even dissent came to be seen as a sickness and one that we needed to be protected from. So it was a very good example of the crisis of freedom that we're all living through where even in a moment as serious as the COVID-19 moment we were not at liberty really to raise questions about what was going on you run you ran the risk of being shut down by the social media oligarchs if you said the wrong thing Uh, look at the way the Great Barrington Declaration and its authors were denounced as the the British Medical Journal called the merchants of doubt as if doubt is a bad thing. Doubt used to be celebrated as the greatest virtue. That's certainly how it was treated during the enlightenment where they said, if you want to be a free thinker, you have to start by doubting what you hear. And then during COVID, we saw people being denounced as merchants of doubt. So I thought that the the COVID period was a very good example of just how severe the crisis of free, free thought has become and how determined the establishment is to have its way and to suppress anyone who raises awkward or difficult questions.
0: The one thing I want to ask about, and I'm not sure I was looking to see if it was here or not, is just, of course, the big exception to what you're describing was this huge demand from elites, public health leaders, politicians, Black Lives Matter activists, that you must violate the lockdowns. By going into the streets and protesting an alleged increase in police brutality and police violence and racism. So on the one hand, they said we must not gather in groups. And then as soon as Black Lives Matter protests were there, they said you must gather in groups. You must go into the streets.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was extraordinary, I thought. And, uh, you know, some people made the mistake at that time, I I think, of saying, well, at last, we've broken. We've broken through the authoritarianism. We, we've recovered the right to protest, the right to gather in public. Uh, we can breathe a sigh of relief now. Someone had to wriggle us out of lockdown, and thank God the Black Lives Matter campaigners did it. I see it very differently. I think the fact that sections of the establishment essentially gave a green light to those protests or certainly treated them with kid gloves in comparison to anyone who dared to protest against the lockdown policy itself, as one example, that to me was another demonstration of their cultural tyranny and their their expectation that they should have the right to tell us when we're allowed to be in public and for what purpose. So what essentially happened there is that lots of the media elite, even sections of the political establishment itself, essentially either shrugged their shoulders over the BLM protests and the BLM gatherings or, else, or a- actively said, yes, go ahead, this issue is so important that it overrides the uh, lockdown. What was happening there is that they were making a cultural judgment. These people are morally virtuous and therefore they are permitted to do things that the rest of you are not. You reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.